You may be seated. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in this next book in the wisdom literature. Having just finished a series in Proverbs, it made sense to go to Ecclesiastes. I'm going to hold Song of Solomon for Pastor Tony to take care of, and uh, maybe I'll pick up after that. As we are looking at this really condensed book of 12 chapters, it falls into this category of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Proverbs and Job are also wisdom literature. For the book of Ecclesiastes, a bit of debate as to who wrote the book. We see in the first verse, it's the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And we would think that sounds a whole lot like Solomon, but we would also see that if Solomon wanted to declare he's the author, he, would have, he could have, like he did in Proverbs, say that this is the writings or the Proverbs of Solomon, instead of using this uh, pen name, Koheleth, which is translated preacher. Maybe it's someone who's merely taking on a Solomon-like perspective on the world. We remember Solomon prayed for wisdom and God gave it to him, and he prayed, but he also gave him great riches, and he had a huge expanse of territory and many wonders and many wives. So it may be this author is taking on the persona of Solomon in how Solomon would view the world. We just... We're going to look at that maybe a little bit later in the sermon, who it could be. In this book, we have a different tone. This tone is somewhat pessimistic, uh, dark, gloomy even. And so it's really a pretty realistic look at the world we live in, this world under the sun. It's a pragmatic walkthrough of the different ways in which you can find meaning and purpose in life. It's just kind of testing out, the preacher testing out, how could you find meaning and purpose in this life? And so the preacher looks long and far and wide, here and there, and everything you can imagine, but he comes up empty. And we're on this path with him. We go through the first 11 chapters without any sense of what is this about? Where do we find meaning until we get to the very last chapter? And that's the, the interpretive key for the entire book, in fact, for life that we find in chapter 12. But we're starting the journey at the first step. The first step is chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to see what the preacher has to say about life under the sun in order that we can come away with wisdom and purpose for living. Follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that this is your word spoken to us. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit that you moved men by your purposes to write your holy scriptures. That this word then is inerrant and it's infallible, it's authoritative, it's sufficient for all of life and godliness. And so as we come to this difficult book of Ecclesiastes, we ask for your help. We ask that your spirit would illumine your words so that the challenging and difficult things to interpret would make sense. Lord, we will look to the, the clear and the straightforward portions of your word to, imp- to interpret the areas that seem less clear. And Lord, we do so for the benefit of growing in understanding of you, understanding of ourselves, and our purpose in this world. Lord, we truly want to understand just what is that purpose, and we want to be able to share with others who are floundering, lost, what their purpose in life is as well. So, Lord, we look to you for your strength as well as we seek to put into practice the lessons we learn here, and that we would do so all by your grace that works in those who you have called to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's true, because the Word of God is inspired by Him, it's His Word to us, it's always relevant. There isn't a time where it's dated and old news and we we just don't need to listen to it. But I find, as I've been preparing and reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's just so eminently applicable to our life today. And it's really heightened, I think, by this last year of frustration, perplexing events, uh, turmoil, things that don't seem to make sense. We're starting to understand, I think, with greater clarity, just some of the dark side of our world and existence in this world. And so, it's showing for us in Ecclesiastes the honesty of the world that we live in, but also then giving us an answer and pointing us to where we can find hope in the midst of these frustrating times. So why is Ecclesiastes so important for us in 2021? I want to bring into play what Martin Luther said as to why it was so important for his day in the 1500s. Martin Luther thought the book of Ecclesiastes was so utterly necessary for his day. He said, we should read this noble little book every day precisely because it so firmly rejects sentimental religiosity. Do we have a problem with sentimental religiosity today? I guess it depends how you define it. When I think of sentimental religiosity, it sounds a whole lot like a Pollyanna-ish 
looking at the world with rose-colored glasses, simply seeing God as love and man as intrinsically good, that this world is a place to live in happiness and success, that we will live by the power of positive thinking, we'll have our best life now, and we will experience all that we deserve because we are the special, lovable people that we are. The religiosity of today is self-centered, happiness-focused, shallow thinking spirituality that uses terms that we hear in the Bible like faith and spirit and God and grace and hope, but they don't mean the same things that the Bible says they are to mean. And they fail to use words like sin and hell and suffering and pain and despair. They want to skate on the surface and not really dig down into the hard parts of life. The hard parts of Scripture are what we need to meet us where the hard parts of life are confronting us. So this is sentimental religiosity, and I really think it's alive and well in the good old U.S. of A. It's sad that the ears of people are being tickled week after week by things they want to hear but really don't meet the needs that they face Monday through Saturday. This false religion really doesn't make sense to an honest observer of the world around us, of our own hearts, of the problems that we face, because it doesn't fit with the harsh world that we live in. The world the preacher looks at in Ecclesiastes, he analyzes it in detail, and it really has a pretty doom and gloom and ultimately an empty, frustrating perplexity. Are you excited now? Is this a good pump-up for a series of gloom and doom that we're going to have to look at? Well, for me, where the rubber hits the road is I don't have people coming to me in counseling or as a minister of the gospel that everything's going well for them and they're just sunshine and roses all the time. They have deep and hard and difficult problems. There's sickness and suffering and pain and conflict and so much trouble. I need answers that are weighty enough to help people with the real questions and the real hurt, the real perplexity and confusion that the book of Ecclesiastes addresses. And so, I want to give honest and authentic answers for living with purpose in this real world. Let's look a little bit as far as an intro to this book. We're going to look at who is this preacher. We're going to look at what the theme of the book is and how we should view our toil under the sun is where we're going to spend most of our time as we then conclude with where you find purpose for life. So the very first word helps us to answer the question, who is the preacher? Verse 1 says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, The title Koheleth, preacher, is translated that way in the ESV. And in the Hebrew, that verb Koheleth uh, comes from a, a verb that means to gather or to assemble. And the people of God were gathered together. Somebody would call to worship and the people would gather in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the word that we use for the calling out or the calling together of God's people is the church, 
which is ekklesia in the Greek. And so ekklesia is where we get the word ecclesiastes. It's just a transliteration of the Hebrew word koheleth into Greek ekklesia, and in English or Latinized way, we, we call it ecclesiastes, the one who calls out, the preacher, the teacher, the scholar. He's gathering together maybe people, maybe gathering together sayings, gathering together thoughts, but the preacher is the one who is called the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And I kind of made reference to this. This was questioned as uh, Martin Luther, I think, was the first to probably start questioning it. The tradition of the rabbis and of the early church fathers was that this was Solomon, but it kind of bears the question, if Solomon doesn't use his name, why would he use this title, Koheleth? If, if it was Solomon, wouldn't he just say like he did for Proverbs, the Proverbs of Solomon? And there's some other kind of incongruities here, but I think the best way to consider this book is that this is, author is representing the way that Solomon would view the world with his riches, with his wisdom, with his many wives, with his uh, particular perspective on life. And so it's kind of the um, introduction we're given to the sayings of, the collection of sayings that this preacher has. And then it's not till the very end of chapter 12, actually, that we hear what is the commentary on all this observation, on all this thought that we are given. So that leads us to the theme in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Name the word that we're going to see is the theme. Um, you could probably pick this up as a first grader. It's vanity. All is vanity. But I think we need to um, get a little depth and breadth to what that word vanity means because it doesn't translate exactly uh, into our modern versions very well. Other versions will have meaningless, meaningless. And I think that maybe overstates it a little bit. The word in the Hebrew is hevel, and it literally means uh, vapor or breath, a puff of smoke. It means something literally that way, but figuratively it's used throughout the Bible, but particularly in Ecclesiastes, 38 times in Ecclesiastes, for something that's unsubstantial, that, that, that lacks worth. Um, on one hand, um, a vapor that you try to grasp is temporary and it's fleeting. It, it just kind of dissipates and goes away. So that there, there's nothing to it. Kind of this idea that uh, life is short, life is fleeting. On the other hand, when you try to chase after the wind, as uh, Ecclesiastes says once or twice, that this attempt at getting something that is, doesn't have substance is, uh, there's a, an irony to it. There is a, a futility in going after that thing because it, it's not real. And think of this way, um, the way that you imagine a mirage in the desert. You're standing here, it's hot, the heat waves are coming up, and you kind of know the explanation of what creates this effect, but it looks like there are waves of water in the, in the distance. So you say, I'm hot, I'm thirsty, what am I going to do? I'm going to press on, I'm going to try and take hold of that which I see with my eyes, but it's not real. 
and you can expend all your energy and get even thirstier trying to get something that isn't real. And that's kind of a, a little bit of the word picture that Ecclesiastes is trying to paint for us when we think of something that is hevel, something that is vain. Well, why is it repeated so much? It's really the only way that in the Hebrew language that you can have an emphatic statement. There isn't a, a, a very vain or very meaningless. It's simply the Hebrew writer would say something twice. For example, in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the place that you would go into in the very very uh, middle, very holiest of places is called the Holy of Holies. This is the sacred place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. In the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah sees the throne room of heaven and he hears the song of the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This God is three times holy. It just is emphasis. And so for the Koheleth, the preacher, to say, vanity of vanities, that's enough, that's pretty extreme, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he's being very thorough, very comprehensive. This is really as empty as it gets. Everything is that way. Boy, would you like to kind of uh, go out with this guy and have a conversation? He'd probably be just this real serious dude, and you're just trying to cheer him up and say, come on, man, it's not really that bad. But he's not wrong, right? He's going to come up with some assessments here of the way that life looks, and it really fits with what we observe under the sun. And so when we look at life according to the preacher, using this term vain 38 times and just this intense use right off the bat in the first chapter, in the second verse, this is the motto of the book. This is the theme, and we're going to see it played out throughout the rest of the chapters. So how should we view our toil under the sun? This is verse 3 where the preacher says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So what is this gain? The, the, the word gain is, is probably literally taken as uh, profit or advantage. You would think of somebody who is in business and you do work so that you make a profit, not so that you break even or that you lose. You want to, you got to get a gain. Um, you think of it, it would be a mistake to read this as the toil, say, of a farmer under the literal sun uh, feeling really hot. It's, it's no fun to work out in the sun. It's not in the sun. It's gain can't be found when we toil under the sun. And this phrase is used a, a few different times to help us understand, really, it's super key in understanding the entire book. And it describes a field of view. It describes a, an area of consideration it defines kind of the edges of what is the preacher looking at. Well, I'm looking at life under the sun. Philip Ryken says that to see things under the sun is to look at them from ground level, taking an earthly point of view and leaving God out of the picture. And that's key because we might say something like, 
we're looking at the situation and, and we say, well, humanly speaking, we, we want to say how this on the earthly level is going on. We're not talking about what, uh, how God would fit into this. But I would say, too, that the preacher's persp- perspective here is not a strictly atheistic picture. It really isn't. Um, he sees a creator. He sees somebody that brought all the world into existence. But I think his God would be more of the God of deism, the idea that God created it all powerfully and amazingly, but then he just kind of wound it up and let it work its way out. He's not actively involved in it and engaged with it. That's our job. So he's more aloof and distant, possibly. That would probably be more correctly the preacher's perspective, not an atheistic one. This life under the sun is life in this fallen world. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, there have been repercussions up to this day. And we are living in response to and under um, the, the reality of that fall. And so, it doesn't take into account what's going on above the sun or over the sun. So, from a New Testament perspective, we might consider under the sun the way that Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Uh, The NIV says, according to a worldly point of view. We don't view people according to a worldly point of view, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this mentality is over the sun thinking, and it's going to help us to really respond to and shape what is the preacher getting at. He can only go so far, and then God's word has to carry us on to the rest of the interpretation. So the, the key for our interpretation of Ecclesiastes has always to, uh, to add as the new redeemed people a perspective that's over the sun. New creations in Christ. As God has made us new creatures in Christ, we have a new perspective on the present, on the future, and even in ter- eternity. So we'll see this under the sun perspective as he deals with this sentiment there's, that there's nothing new, that it's the same old, same old. That's one commentator said that would be a good title for this uh, first chapter, the same old, same old. But we'll first look at it from the preacher's perspective and how he deals with nothing new and then look at it through the idea, the, the, the new perspective in the New Testament. So I had a used car that I bought for one of my kids. And when I was driving it home and kind of test driving it, I probably was in the car for about a half hour. Now, this this uh, was an older vehicle, and it had a CD player in it for young, young people. Uh, a CD is a disc that kind of spins around, and it plays music, okay? And so what I didn't realize, it was about a half hour of driving around before I realized that the CD player was on repeat. And I was only listening to the first track again and again and again and again and again, but I I wasn't kind of aware of it. But then when I became aware of it, I'm like, oh, 
how do we get this thing off a of repeat? I don't ever just want to look, listen to just one song that keeps going again and again and again. Well, that's kind of the, the mindset that the preacher gives in describing how this world is functioning. Verse 4 through verse 8, he uses these pictures from nature to just show the monotony, the ongoing repetitive nature of life under the sun. Remember, this isn't the whole picture, but this is what he sees from an earthly perspective. Verse 4, a generation goes, a generation comes. People are born and die, born and die, born and die. That's a cycle that keeps on going. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and then it hastens to the place where it rises and it does it again and again and again. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and then it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. It just, just keeps a cycle, keeps coming back. All the streams, look at the streams. They run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow out again. Do you remember learning about the water cycle in your first science class? How the water would evaporate and form clouds, and then the snow would fall on the mountains, and the streams would go down into the rivers, into the sea, and then the cycle would take place again and again. Even the preacher in ancient Israel understood this thing just keeps going and going and going. And boy, it just kind of illustrates to me the monotony of life. It just goes on. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. So it just wears you out. Just going through life, it just goes on and on and on. And it doesn't seem to go anywhere. And so that view of we're not progressing, we're not going somewhere, we're just going around and around, is what he can view in nature and what he sees under the sun in human existence. The eye, verse 8, it's not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Life's monotonous, we're easily bored, and I fear that this generation is going to be plagued by that to a greater degree than any other just because of all the virtual electronic means that they have for filling themselves. It's attempting to fill, but it never succeeds. The eye and the ear, the preacher says, are never satisfied or filled. And today, our eyes are never filled as we binge watch Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. Our ears with their air, AirPods and, ear, and headphones, they're just never filled with our Spotify and Pandora and whatever way that we have for getting podcast after podcast into our ears, but we need more. We just crave more. Why is that? Well, some of us feel like we need distraction. Some of us feel that we just need a way to get away and to not think about life the way it is. Because here's verse 9. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. That's it. You're born, you live, you die. That's it. Under the sun. What's the point of that? Nihilism, 
this idea like there's no meaning to anything sounds very attractive at this point because I'm not, I'm not seeing what, what makes this life worth living if it just repeats and goes on and on and on. Verse 10, is there a thing which has said, see, this is new? What a great question. Is there something new? Is there really something new? It doesn't seem like there's something new. But he plants in our minds, the reader, this question, is there something that's outside of this cycle that's on repeat? Is there something that's above the sun that can help us understand what we see with our eyes? Well, maybe you feel like your life is uh, stuck on repeat. Maybe you're bored with the monotony of life and you're maybe even numbed by it. You're stuck in the trap of thinking that nothing really matters and I can't make a difference that endures because that's going to be forgotten. I mean, this world is a mess. I mean, the, the idea that, you know, you should, you should be educated and get a job in something that you're passionate about so you can make a difference in the world seems like a bubble that's just bursting every day. I hear thousands and thousands of bursted bubbles because people are just looking at the world around them and saying, it's not changing. It's not getting better. Where do I find hope? Well, maybe you are that student that's seeking out, okay, where do I find, uh, where, where do I find direction on where I'm going to go to college or what I'm going to do for a living? Uh, maybe you're that young person that's looking for a spouse, trying to find uh, who you should marry. Maybe you're finding the monotony in your attempts at parenting. I'm trying, I'm trying, and nothing seems to be getting through. Maybe it's the repetitiveness of your job, of keeping the house. It's just going to get messed up again. Caring for aging parents can seem like a treadmill that you're on. Or going through a midlife crisis. It's like maybe you're becoming empty nesters and you found all your purpose and meaning in raising those kids and now they're gone. Where, where do I find purpose and meaning? Maybe it's in those living out those retirement years. But let me bring some over-the-sun perspective to you on that monotony, on those cycles. And it's in line with the interpretive key that we get in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, where the author says, the end of the matter, all that's been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So you bring in the fear of the Lord, which we've learned from Proverbs is what? The beginning of wisdom? That's over the sun kind of thinking. You don't get that from under the sun. You have to have it revealed to you that there is a God in this world, and this God is not aloof. He has spoken. He has given us commandments. He has revealed to us who He is, what we're to believe about Him, and what duty He requires of us. He also tells us how we're going to be held accountable for whether we follow those commandments, that there is a judgment for God will bring every deed into judgment. And we know since the coming of Christ and the revelation, further revelation of the New Testament, that true over-the-sun look at life is that, yes, we are called to follow God's commandments and fail, but Christ came and didn't fail. 
And he came to be a sacrifice on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to suffer the judgment that we deserve because we haven't kept those commands. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is now giving us this interpretation that gives us an over-the-sun perspective on the preacher's under-the-sun view. And so we can tie in from the words of Jesus a perspective on toil and what gain is there in that. When in Matthew 6 at 19, Jesus says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. That's under the sun action. You get it, somebody steals it. You earn it, it rots away or rusts, right? But Jesus then says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where, there, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. New perspective, a fuller perspective on as you labor, what are you laboring for? The meaning and purpose that Jesus gives to life under the sun has to be from over the sun. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told this to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is key. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, what shall a man give in return for his soul? The preacher under the sun hasn't factored in the soul because people will ta- toil and labor and work so that they can get for themselves a great gain. But they miss what's going on with their soul. They haven't denied themselves and followed Christ. They're following themselves and denying Christ. In this mentality of of vanity and the condition of the world that we live in, Paul gives us insight into this in Romans chapter 8. You are familiar with this where the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of men, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This word futility is what you would translate in the Old Testament, vanity. This world was subjected to futility God did it, and it's a result of this fall of man into sin. He goes on to say that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain a freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's more to this life than just the here and now. There's the redemption that's yet to come. Paul Tripp wrote an excellent book that we've used in our Sunday school classes uh, from time to time. It's called uh, Broken Down House, uh, Living Productively in a World Gone Wrong. 
And I think that's kind of the perspective that Paul brings here, that the creation's groaning, that the world is not as God created it to be because sin has, has come in and marred that and has defaced that. So things don't work as they're supposed to work. You were put in the garden to toil and labor with your hands and to keep the garden, and it would bring fruit and supply and it would grow. But because of the fall now, your labor and toil even in the garden is going to be hard because there's going to be weeds and there's going to be thorns and it's going to be difficult. And that's where the preacher sees what's going on. Boy, it was this, now it's this. There's no hope. But Jesus and Paul and the rest of Scripture that interprets the Scripture is going to give us an above-the-sun view so that we do find hope but we're making a connect point with reality, with the harshness of things, with the difficulty you face in your personal lives and with friends and family members, the way that your neighbors face it, and the way that you can now bring the hope of life above the sun into view. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. In that chapter where every Easter we're making reference to this chapter because Paul makes this argument that if Jesus has not been risen again from the grave, your faith is in vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. Just give up. Turn over to sentimental religiosity. That'll be at least give you some, I don't know, warm fuzzies until it's all over. No. Your faith is not in vain because indeed Jesus has been risen from the dead. And he concludes that chapter saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. But Jesus, but his kingdom first. All these things will be added. And Christ is raised from the dead, so we have a hope for a glory of a new heavens and a new earth, a recreation, that the broken down place that we live now is not our final home. There's an above and beyond to this world under the sun that gives Christians great hope. As redeemed over the sun view will transform our perspective on the monotony and the meaningless of life, we're going to find that when we have the whole of Scripture interpreting this Scripture, we're going, to, we're going to have a genuine, honest view for ourselves and one that can make sense and communicate to the people who live in this world. I, I want to see it as an over-the-sun view that burns away that fog, that vapor that would just keep us locked down into this worldly thinking. So every day, and every time we come back to Ecclesiastes, we're going to have to make sure we have those lenses back in place so we don't fall into the despair and the gloom and doom that is before us, but that we see things honestly, truthfully, but with the hope of Christ and the gospel and the -the over-the-sun perspective. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we uh, thank you that you have given us your word. And 